This is the Money and Politics Podcast. I'm Andrew Blumenfeld. My guest today is a nationally award-winning political researcher and strategist who has worked for over two decades advising candidates and elected officials at the presidential, U.S. Senate, congressional, and gubernatorial level. I've asked her to join us to help shed light on an area of politics that is often tucked into the shadows, opposition research. Whether and how campaigns choose to spend money on research can play a big role in the whole shape of their campaign. And money and fundraising all too often find themselves at the very center of this kind of research in a way that can ultimately prove to be quite damaging. Her name is Carol Brown Andrews. She is a partner at Grindstone Research, and she's here to tell us all about it. But first, a word from Call Time AI. You're listening to Money in Politics, brought to you by Call Time AI. Campaigning is hard. Why not make fundraising easy? Using automation and artificial intelligence, Call Time AI lets you fundraise five times faster with easy-to-use tools like instant donor research, automated voicemail drop, and donor scoring, so that you are always calling the right person at the right time with the right ask. Go online to calltime.ai to schedule a demo and start your free trial today. So I'm here now with Carol Andrews. Thank you so much for joining me. Hi, thanks for having me on. Yeah, well, I'm excited to be chatting with you today. It's about a topic that we haven't chatted a lot with other folks about in the past. So it's it's very interesting. But before we get into the work that you currently do, I also know that you have done some really amazing things in your political journey to date. So just curious if you wouldn't share with the with our listeners a little bit about yourself, maybe some highlights from your career in politics so far. Sure. Well, I started out, I was a, a journalism major in college. I just knew I was going to be, you know, this Pulitzer Prize winning <laughs> journalist. And that did not transpire. But I was, I covered politics and a num- number of things in the Nashville market for a group of newspapers, statewide group of newspapers, and covered a lot of politics, also did a lot of investigative journalism. So that really lends itself to what I'm doing now. But Over the course of my career, I was press secretary, communications director in a lot of different campaigns. I managed campaigns, acted as GC for campaigns, just done a lot of different things. And then I served under the dome a couple of times, which I found out was not my gig, but I did serve for two wonderful Democratic governors, former Washington Governor Chris Gregoire and former Wisconsin Governor Jim Doyle. And today is his birthday, I found (laughs) out. And I sent him a happy birthday text this morning. And then I was just like, you know, I'm too old to be on the road anymore. Although I am on the road, but not for six months to two years, you know, at a clip. So I decided I was going to come back to Tennessee and stop all this traveling. And I wanted to go into the consulting business. Didn't know exactly which discipline I wanted, but I wanted something that fit my lifestyle. And I found it with Greg Talmadge and Matt Bricken had started Grindstone Research a number of years ago. And I had worked with Greg in particular a number of Senate races. And when I was communications director and he was the research director, So I knew a lot about what they did, and they just had to teach me a little bit more about how to use LexisNexis and things like that. (laughs) I already knew how to go digging through courthouses, and so I just fell right into it. I've been with them almost a decade now, Oh wow! and it suits me fine. (laughs) Well, 
Let's talk more about that. What about it? Well, actually, before I ask you what about it suits you, for those listening who are maybe not as familiar with the work that Grindstone Research does, and even just generally on campaigns, sort of the role of research, maybe you can provide folks with like a little tutorial on what it is that you all do with the campaigns and causes that you work with. Sure. Well, of course, large campaigns, especially large Senate campaigns and presidential campaigns will have research directors on staff. Usually, sometimes we will work with them and complement the work that they do. But by and large, most campaigns do not have an in-house research person. So they hire us or someone like us, hopefully us, to (laughs) come in and, first of all, look at their own candidate. That's one of the most important things that a person can do or a campaign can do is make sure everything is tick-tock with their own candidate and seek out vulnerabilities and strengths and, you know, try to figure out how they're going to come at you. Mm -hmm. But we also do the oppo research on our opponents and we look into everything you can find on the public record. We don't follow people outside their homes or dig through their trash. <laughs> PIs can do that, but we're not, we don't do that. But we just dig through a lot of courthouses, any publicly available data out there. We gather a lot of documentation and then we try to connect the dots. You know, what's a trend here? You know, what's this person about? What's this voting pattern? You know, how much money has this person taken from special interest over the years and then voted their way accordingly. We call that pay to play. We look at all sorts of things. And then we offer what we call rapid response and fact checking for campaigns down the road. But really, research informs everything that goes on in the campaigns after, after you do that part of it. Otherwise, you're just flying blind. Sure. And so it sounds like one of the things that you probably would advise people to do is do that research relatively early in the process. What are some of the other things that you think makes for a really effective use of the kind of work you all provide to campaigns? Well, effective is, you know, that's all relative. That depends on (laughs) a lot of circumstances. Not the least is whether you are funded well enough to do the depth of research you need and to communicate the parts of that research that are going to work for you going forward. And that's where you guys come in. But, (laughs) you know, I mean, money makes everything happen. In the opposition research we have, it's all gleaned from the public record. We gather the facts, we connect the dots, we form a big rubric to make the case for or against a candidate. And like I said, research informs polling, polling informs strategy, strategy informs delivery, and all of that takes cash. Right. But we do come in very early on. So it's a definitely a good reminder about sort of the financial <laughs> role, especially up front. What about, I'm just curious about how often it is that money itself becomes one of these trends that you're finding. In other words, <laughs> maybe kind of fits under the umbrella of a scandal or maybe not yeah. as maybe doesn't rise to the level of a scandal, but it's just sort of an issue that then becomes a, a centerpiece of how a campaign is messaging is my instinct is the answer is yes. But just from someone who actually knows and lives this work, how often is money at the center of some of these things? Oh, very often, very <laughs> often. One of the first things I do is go to 
the financial reports and the various websites like Open Secrets and Follow the Money. And I'm looking for those trends. How much money does this member of Congress, has this member of Congress taken from XYZ special interest over the years? And how Mm -hmm. is that matched up with his or her voting record? Mm -hmm. And what kind of dirty money or mm-hmm. or clean money, whatever it has you have on the record. Those are the first things we look at. You look at money from controversial figures, the Koch brothers of the world <laughs> and, and so on. And you look for things that maybe haven't been handled correctly or even legally and try to figure out what's there. And I can tell you from experience, one of the worst things that can happen during the course of a campaign when you're trying to talk to voters about what matters, you know, jobs, education, healthcare, and everything, and you get this call from a reporter who is like, did you know you your candidate has money from the porn industry or mm-hmm. something? That has happened to me. <laughs> that has happened to me. Uh, I worked for a top-tier Senate campaign many years ago, and I was the communications director, and actually my partner, Greg Talmadge, grindstone partner, was the research director and we got the call and they were like, seriously, your candidate has money from the LA porn industry. <laughs> well, a bundler had pulled it together, you know, and, and we thought it was all legit, I guess. But that was a case where we failed in the vetting process. The campaigns always need to vet their donors. You never know what's out there. I'm telling you, your opposition is looking and they're going to try to make hay out of it. We offer that service, but we always try to train somebody in-house to be able to look at that. Look at that mm-hmm. person. Look at that industry. If your candidate is purporting to be Mr. Environmental, mm-hmm. it doesn't look well for him to have money from the coal industry. Right. You know, right. it's a hypocritical sort of thing, but it can be a big problem. And how do you decide or work with campaigns and their teams to decide basically how far down the rabbit hole, I'll call it, you all feel like you need to go. And by that, I mean, for an example, you just mentioned the need to vet donors. That makes a lot of sense, right? Someone's actually taking money from that person. They should have some sense of who it is that they're taking money from. But then you can imagine, and you certainly have seen stories from time to time of this donor is connected through some business thing and their business part. I mean, you really get like seven degrees of of separation before you actually hit the like really problematic piece. And so part of it as a consumer of this stuff, as a voter, sometimes you just shrug your shoulders and you're like, that's like, it's a stretch. They'll find a way to make anything look bad. How do you all decide what the line is between this is something you seriously need to invest resources? Because as you point out, it's these are relatively expensive endeavors if you're going to really run down and keep an eye on all of these different pieces. Where's that line for you all? Or how do you think about coaching campaigns about that line of where you have to say, yes, you have to invest up until this point, but then after that, there's only yeah. so much you can like, do. <laughs> yeah, if it's ridiculous, it's just ridiculous, you know? <laughs> right. But, and, and speaking of rabbit holes, I catch myself going down them all the time, and then I have to stop <laughs> and say, wow, that is way out there, and we will never use that. And right. I mean, it's interesting to me, but, sure. you know, let's like focus, Carol, focus. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> You just have to use common sense on these things. But if you dig in on one level and it looks kind of sketchy and then you go to the next level and and it's sketchy all the way down, I mean, yeah, that's something. (laughs) But, you know, it can get ridiculous. 
And I imagine part of that is driven by the fact that there's all these changing ways that people can get their hands on information. I mean, how have you seen everything from obviously all of these social media platforms where people just have their identities living in all these different places? Plus, you talk about courts and obviously more and more entities making their records available online. How has that sort of changed the way that you've approached both the research you do and also the kind of advice you give to campaigns about that self-research you were talking about, making sure that you sort of your online presence is above board. Yeah, right. I mean, well, with your own candidate, you know, it's really important, particularly with candidates who are now in the mainstream and they've been grown up in a, in a social media sort of world. Mm-hmm. I mean, you have to say, look, we got to really go in here and look at the tweets you've done and the posts you've, you know, and of course, the frat party you had way back when, <laughs> you know, and your guzzling beer. But I think voters kind of think, eh, you know, whatever. But, you know, people live. They do live. It's just the tools are getting sharper every year. They are getting easier to use. The records are online more and more. But we still, at the end of the day, want to make sure that we have everything is just TikTok and it's right. And so we still go, go to ground, as we say, and we're still going into those city halls and we're going into the courthouses and we're going to all those places we need to go to make sure everything matches up. Because sometimes you can find things online in a database and maybe it's okay, maybe, but it isn't always. So you have to have the real documentation. And back to the kind of comment before about the keeping an eye on your donors, You mentioned, and I thought it made a lot of sense, that part of it is just really contextual, right? If you are the candidate who's advocating all these pro-environment policies and then you're taking money from the coal industry, Mm -hmm. that's more likely to cause a problem, I suppose, than if you're not that candidate making those kinds of policy prescriptions and you happen to be taking money from the coal industry. Any other thoughts about, especially kind of on a, when you are trying to train those people in the campaign to be on the lookout, any other kind of ways that you help them think about making sure that their own fundraising itself doesn't become a negative story about them? Right. Well, again, they have to be trained in the, in the le- all of the legal aspects and sure, the compliance sure. and you know how hairy that can get. But yeah, it's uh, just teaching them to look out for the pitfalls that they may come into and showing hypocrisies with their candidate. Or in the case I was talking about where I had a candidate who had unwittingly accepted money from the porn industry, not Mm -hmm. a lot of it, but it had been in a bundle. They were trying to make the case that my candidate was just not up to the standards of the Senate, which at the time, well, it's always been the more collegial house in the in Congress, but they just, you know, we're trying to make a make the case that this guy, he's a little too smarmy to be in mm-hmm. Congress. I mean, look, you know, mm-hmm. but by and large, I think people sense hypocrisies. They don't like hypocrisies. Voters like consistency mm-hmm. and they don't want you to say one thing and do another. And if we do the money trail and we show that John Doe says he's this guy, but he's really not. And he's funded by these bad guys. That's not a good look. Right. I wonder what your thoughts are about how that same idea is definitely I've seen applied as a way for campaigns to attack 
their opponents for just raising lots of money, period, right? Like just the fact that they have raised a lot of money, which is always interesting to me as someone who works obviously in the political space and specifically in the fundraising space. As you mentioned, it's the dollars are the lifeblood, right? They're the thing that pays for everything else and makes everything else work. So, so there's just sort of like a necessity there. But then obviously, at some point, there is this perception, or at least some campaigns make the claim that there is this perception that it's like, it's too much, you've gone too far, you've raised too much money, or maybe raised money from people who are too rich, right? There's nothing else about them that we don't like other than the fact that they have a lot of money. I'm curious your reaction to that, because that definitely seems to be an increasing trend on the Democratic side of the aisle is just to reject the notion of money. Yeah, I mean, and of course, we have seen basically a wholesale refusal to accept from corporate PACs. Right. And mm-hmm. and that's a good thing. I think mm-hmm. it is a good thing. But generally, when I, and, and this sounds crass, and it just is, I guess, <laughs> but generally, when I hear campaigns attack their opponents for having huge amounts of money, it's because they don't have huge amounts of money. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> and, and they don't have enough money to communicate effectively. And that's that's kind of like the old putting up the campaign, the debate chicken, you know, or the debate mm-hmm. duck. Oh, mm-hmm. he won't debate me. So those are process arguments. And I don't think really do a lot to voters. I think that's inside baseball. Yeah. Along those lines, actually, I am sometimes struck by, but I don't know if, if I have a long enough view of this, and certainly not through the lens of opposition research the way you do. But it seems as if there has been less of an pushback from voters on any number of things about a a candidate's life or their leadership that would, I assume, would have normally been, if not disqualifying, then highly problematic for them. Obviously, the sort of epitome of this is Trump because he's just such a bad character from just a personality perspective, even if you knew nothing else about him there would be all these things that would be traditionally disqualifying. And obviously, he that didn't seem to matter for him, at least the first time around. So I think I'm it still if doesn't matter um, <laughs> if that's... To, to his followers. They just, mm-hmm. uh, particularly the, what I see being here in the South, and I call it the buckle on the Bible belt where I live, <laughs> the evangelicals around, you know, they don't care. They would normally really care about these mm-hmm. deep character flaws that he has. Mm-hmm. They know he's lying. They know that. They mm-hmm. don't care. It's all about the courts with them mm-hmm. and a few other things. But And then you have people who aren't so religious, but they don't care either. You know, he's sure. made it okay for some people to be as out there ugly to their fellow man and woman as they would like. Right. And that's what we've seen. But yeah, for anybody else in any other time, the things that he has gotten by with and his character flaws would really be disqualifiers. What we still see some of those issues on different levels are disqualifying. It's just him. I don't really understand it. I will say Republicans are more forgiving of other Republicans for their flaws than Democrats are of Democrats. Interesting. Yeah. Well, it's there's something about it that's comforting to hear that at least once you get out of the kind of wacky world of the presidential level, that there's still some, some, I say it's like the shame factor, right? That the, the yeah. fact that like shame still exists to a healthy degree, you know, to a healthy, some level. <laughs> somewhat. <laughs> right, right. Somewhat, but I marvel at it. I long lived in a, in a red state, a deep red state that 
used to be used to be blue till about 2010. But the Republicans are very, very forgiving of Republicans. And and that goes right into Donald Trump. And I don't understand it where we I Democrats, we just kind of say, oh, that's a bad guy. He's ours, but he's a bad guy. I can't have that. Mm -hmm. And we stay at home or otherwise. And yeah, it's it's troubling. Do you find that that's true in some of the, the research work that you've done? Is it equally true when you're talking about, hey, this is a Democrat who has taken some positions that are not considered sufficiently progressive? Or is it, oh, this is a Democrat who has something wrong in their personal life and that I think is not good? Is it either one or the other or both? Yeah, I think it's both. I think, though, it seems to me that Democrats across the board tend to look more at policy positions than what some would perceive as character flaws. I think that we tend to disqualify our people based on, you know, oh my gosh, he's been over, he's a dino or she's a dino (laughs) and they're just not progressive enough. We're seeing that split somewhat, particularly in the South where you still have moderate to conservative Democrats. Otherwise they're going to be gone. And so you still have some people like that, but those are generally based on positions, I think. So have you ever had a campaign ask you to self-vet a candidate and your conclusion was that this is not winnable <laughs> because of what you found? You don't have to reveal yes. names, of course, but yes. has that occurred? <laughs> what your listeners can't see is that I'm shaking my head wildly in, in agreement with you. <laughs> yes, I have I, quite often. And I will have people who are just thinking of running for some office and they will have me vet themselves to Mm -hmm. see. And it's always really kind of telling the way they'll say, well, how do you deliver the product? And you're not, I don't want my family to know that I'm doing this. And I, that's always Uh very telling to me that they know they have some big problems Uh and I will just generally spill it say are you telling me x y or z and they're like yeah yeah and i'm like well don't even think about it (laughs) just don't even think about it i have told many people like yeah you need to just stop it right now let's not waste your money yeah it's so interesting because we i feel like increasingly we're trying to help on the fundraising side campaigns do basically some initial stress testing of their own network to see, okay, if you really got in this, you put the hours in, are you going to raise enough money Mm -hmm. both to test yourself? Like, do you have the discipline to do the work it takes to raise money? And do you have a network that's eager to see you run and is willing to put their dollars behind that? And I hadn't thought about, but it makes a lot of sense that one of those also sort of pre-qualification activities should be, hey, maybe put some of those early dollars towards some research and make sure that this is kind of on both sides. Like, is there research there that could be highly problematic for you? And even if you think you can overcome that and prepare adequately for it, do you want to put yourself and your family through the process of this information becoming public? Right, right. And I will tell you that I have in the process, and this goes more to the opposition than my own clients, but it has happened. Maybe there's been a messy divorce or some tragedy within the family and they have children at home and who are innocent of all of it. And I can say that I was researching an opponent who was selling himself as the family values guy. This has been several years ago. We go to the courthouse in this small town in a southern state 
And there is this big fat file from his first marriage, his divorce, and it's just full of really bad things, mm -hmm. really bad things. And the guy had kids were still living there in town with their mother and he had remarried. And, and we look at that and say, well, he's certainly a hypocrite, but do we want to touch this and, you know, cause trauma to these children? Mm -hmm. Well, no, that's too hot for voters yeah. to handle yeah. sometimes. And they understand tragedy and they don't like it to be exploited mm -hmm. if it's going to hurt somebody. But I've seen that with my own candidates and I'm like, look, are you going to forge ahead? Okay. If you're going to forge ahead, we need to come up with a rapid response plan, communications right. plan to head this off when and if it hits. Yeah. And it probably is going to hit. It makes me wonder what are some of the ways that you think this the research that you do can be mishandled and sort of backfire or, or just be poorly utilized or not utilized, what are basically some not best practices? Yeah. Well, sometimes, you know, and you see these more in down ballot races, but people will be really eager to say, oh, when you have a really good issue to use on its own, sometimes they will get so excited and they will push the envelope. And I'm like, no, you cannot say that in this mail piece. You've got to tone this down. Mm -hmm. We can't prove that. <laughs> but sometimes they go ahead and they do what they're going to do. Mm -hmm. And I have consulted with my attorneys and I know that I'm not culpable <laughs> for that. <laughs> I have done my job. Sure. Um, and you do see those ads that are just outlandish. You know that they have stretched the truth. And I always... I have heated arguments about that. It doesn't yeah. happen a lot. It certainly doesn't happen too much in big races, but you do see it from time to time. And particularly the IEs will, independent expenditure people will just want to pull it beyond recognition. And right. I do have some sense of pride of my the integrity of my work. Sure. But that does happen from time to time. Again, as a, as a consumer of this stuff, just a voter seeing this information, I noticed that even within myself, and this kind of connects to the earlier conversation we were having about sort of where people's tolerance level has changed. One of the things I know for me is not only does it appear as if people's tolerance level has changed, but because in a lot of settings, the rhetoric has become so over the top on kind of all things, whether it's pro or con, it's just there's just like a hyperbolic rhetoric has just become sort of the the standard, it seems, in a lot of political communication. And so as a consequence, and I don't know how other voters respond to this. I, I don't pretend that I'm actually normal in this way at, at all. But my reaction is almost always just to to assume that if it sounds either too good to be true or too bad to be true, that it's probably not true. <laughs> right, right. I mean, yeah. When it, when the rhetoric gets too hot and too yeah. hyperbolic, you just know, like, I, you have to tune Something's it out. Up. Yeah. <laughs> but, you know, I, I hear, I've always heard this from voters. You go to any focus group anywhere in America and voters will tell you they don't like negative, what they say, negative campaigning. Mm -hmm. And sometimes they will even draw that all the way to what what I think is a softer term of contrast, right, uh, right. contrasting the candidates. They always tell you that they don't like it and they don't respond to it, but they do respond to it. Yeah, I, they do. And mm -hmm. you can look at look at your Twitter feed any day of the week and right. people are responding to the craziest things out there. And they do like to know. I will say that it is only fair that voters 
have the information. They need to know if their candidate or elected official made up her college degree. I find those all the time. It's ridiculous that people still do that, but they do. And sometimes they make up their colleges, but they need to know that their senator hasn't paid child support while the senator has been making laws about you paying your child support. They need to know that your state representative, who is also a physician, is out doling OxyContin prescriptions while that person is also making laws about the opioid crisis. I mean, they need to know these things, whether right. they, they say they don't like to know them and uh, who likes to know it, but you need to know it. Yeah. Yeah. And the, the words you used a moment ago too, and heard that uses contrast, right? Versus negative is it seems right that there's a lot of value for voters to be able to make an informed decision. I, in some ways, I liken it to a, a job interview, not as if there's people out there surfacing <laughs> research on you in a job interview usually, but I think sometimes voters, frankly, let themselves off the hook too much by imagining that, oh, I recognize that person's name, or I like the fact that this one organization endorsed them. And not that any of those things aren't perfectly fine data points, but in a normal job interview, that would never be sufficient to get them the job. And and you'd want to know a lot more about their qualifications. You want to know a lot more about what they are, are not able and likely to do. And of course, that doesn't happen in a vacuum. You have to know how that is compared to the other choices you have on the ballot. <laughs> it's true. I mean, elections are about choices right. and voters need to be informed. And that falls back on the campaigns. And so it's a vicious circle. The campaigns have to raise enough money to do their job, mm -hmm. and that's to have the research, have the facts, and be able to communicate those facts to right. make the contrast and sell their candidate. But I will say, talking about a job interview, what job interview have any of us had that you're not vetted to some degree? Right, I mean, right. usually to a very large degree. Right, I can't right. tell you how many times I've been run through the ringer. And sometimes I do it to myself just to see what's out there. But, you know, that's just part and parcel of the American hiring and firing experience. <laughs> that's right. Whether it's that's political it. or corporate. That's right. Well, before I let you go, one last question sort of about the future. I've, I've enjoyed asking professionals in this space, especially as we're recording this, we're not too far past, but we're on the other side now of the 2020 cycle, or, or mostly there's obviously still some, some loose ends to tie up there. But just curious for someone who has been invested in politics for a good long time, will continue to be invested in politics and is now closing the books on a major cycle. As you look ahead to 2021, 2022 and beyond, anything of note about specifically opposition research, research more generally, and things you think people who are paying attention to all this stuff ought to be paying more attention to as we reflect on this last cycle and look ahead to the next? Yeah. I mean, I touched on this a few minutes ago. I, as far as my ability to do my job and with COVID looming over and stopping a lot of travel, although I still do a good amount, but the technological tools are just coming at us fast and furious. And that's good. That's a good thing. I still like to go to ground, but sometimes you can't do it. I think, too, with the sorts of issues we've seen come to come to the fore in the presidential election, in the Senate races and congressional races, I think people are going to be looking more and more at 
different sorts of issues, particularly with foreign interference and activities. You know, it's just going to be very telling. I mean, we're still shaken out right now on this last cycle. So I'll be looking for those sorts of things and those sorts of angles. And I'm always learning about, oh, well, I've had this experience and, you know, that's a new experience. Well, Mm -hmm. now I'm going to put that into my playbook of things I look at all the time. Sure. So, yeah. And foreign influence, it sounds like definitely one of those. Any others coming? I mean, I know you said we're still shaking it out. That's definitely true. But anything else come up in 2020 that made you go, oh, I'm going to be on the lookout for that next Well, the number of independent expenditures, I mean, there are always tons of them. But it seems that it just exploded. Or Mm. maybe they're just communicating more honestly and (laughs) they're just out front. But yeah, we'll be looking at a lot of those. Interesting. Very interesting. Well, thank you so much for spending some time with me today. I really appreciate it. It's a very interesting. I'll tell you, I I know some other people who work in the research space and opposition research, and they're almost uh, comically difficult to get to talk about what they do or <laughs> share things. It's like a, almost like a, they're stereotypically kind of living behind the shadows. So I appreciate yeah. you coming out and, and sharing. I certainly sure. found it interesting. I'm sure our listeners did too. Yeah. Well, I'm glad to be on. It's good to hear your voice and spend some time with you. Likewise. Have a great rest of your day. You too. Bye-bye. Stay up to date with the latest fundraising trends, forecasts, and advice by going to the Call Time AI blog at www.calltime.ai. And follow us on Twitter at Call Time AI. <laughs>